right. Okay. Uh, brothers and sisters, welcome to another episode of the Bible History Project. Before we proceed, we ask everyone to please stand for our open prayer. Almighty Yahuwah, thank you so much, yes. Heavenly Father, yes, for blessing us with life and strength this day. Yes. Despite what is transpiring throughout the world, yes. Father, we have perfect peace because of your fellowship. Amen. This is what gives us hope and strength yes, to go on worshiping your holy name. Amen. As we study your holy commands, yes, may you Father. fill us with nourishment for our souls. Yes, Father. Help us to be edified in our faith. Yes. That no matter what we face in the future, we will prevail and overcome them all yes, because Lord. of your help and strength. Amen. Lord Yahusha, we praise and worship you as well. Yes. Increase Lord. our faith and strengthen us always. Yes. And Lord. please continue to pray for all of us yes, and keep Lord. us protected at all times. Amen. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. Yes. Lord. You have forgiven our sins. Yes. Lord. For we ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha. Amen. Amen. All right, uh, thank you so much for attending our Bible History Project. Tonight, we're going to talk about Mount Sinai. There are many mountains, famous mountains at that throughout the world. Mount Pinatubo is one, Mount Fuji another. But I think out of all the mountains, Mount Sinai is a very enigmatic and powerful sounding mountain. And it's very significant, especially when it comes to worshiping God. Because something happened in Mount Sinai that changed the landscape of religion during that time of the people of Israel. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we get there, keep in mind that we left off by studying what happened to the people of Israel during the time when they were in Rephidim, remember? And then they went to the wilderness of Sinai and experienced the power, miracles of God, one after the other. But take note, their purpose is to go all the way where? To Mount Sinai. At last, they are already at the foot of Mount Sinai, and something will be revealed to the people of Israel. Now, before we go there, let's go ahead and look at Exodus as a chapter in the Bible. There are how many chapters in the book of Exodus? Who can tell me? How many chapters? In, in Genesis, I think it had 50 chapters. How about in Exodus? It's consisting of 40 chapters, and we can break down the outline of the book of Exodus basically into three parts. What are those three parts? Exodus 1, 1 to 18. When I say 1 to 18, it's chapters 1 to chapter 18. Exodus chapters 19 to 24. And Exodus chapter 24 to 40. So that's the breakdown, the outline of the themes of the book of Exodus. We just completed Exodus chapter 1, verse all the way to 18. And it basically talked about deliverance by the power of Yahuwah, our God. So today, we're going to begin a new theme. From Exodus 19 to 24, we're going to focus on the law, which reveals the holiness of God. And so the emphasis in the next few chapters of the book of Exodus is the holiness of God shown by the law that God has given to his people. And the last few chapters, so 24 to 40, it talks about the tabernacle, of God because it is about the presence of God as people worshiped him during this time. But today we're going to talk about, of course, the law and how God reveals his holiness. So let's jump into Exodus 19, 1 down to 2. They came from Rephidim, a place of rest. They went to the wilderness of Sinai. And finally, what happened to them? Exodus 19, 1 to 2. 
exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. And so in Rephidim, they fought the Amalekites. Remember that? They went to the wilderness of Sinai, and now they're at the base of Mount Sinai. And so it becomes more and more exciting for the people of Israel. Now, they're at the base of Mount Sinai. It should remind us about the transformative experiences of the people of God when they are on mountaintops. You probably know certain mountaintop experiences, right? For example, in Mount Ararat, Mount Moriah, Mount Calvary. How many here remember what happened in Mount Ararat? That's where the ark landed. I'm talking about Noah's ark. And there God gave the covenant with Noah. Never again shall I destroy the whole world by means of a Lot. It's called the Noahic Covenant. How about in Mount Moriah? What happened in Mount Moriah? It was there that God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. It was actually a demonstration of what God would eventually do with his own son. This is why Mount Moriah was about the promise of a lamb. Who is that lamb? The lamb of God, our Lord Yahusha HaMashiach. Mount Calvary. Of course, we know what happened in Mount Calvary. That is where the lamb Yahusha was slain. And so in the mountaintops in the Holy Bible contain significant transformative events concerning the people of God. Okay, and so what happened when they finally arrived at the base of the Mount, Mount Sinai? In Exodus 3 verse 12, God answered, I will be with you and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. Remember when Yahuwah first showed up to Moses, when he first appeared to Moses in the burning bush, right? And God revealed to him his name. And God told Moses, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. And God gave him a sign. What is that sign? The sign is you're going to come back. To this mountain and you will worship me that was fulfilled in exodus chapter 19 the people of israel finally reached the mountain and so what does moses do when they arrive at the mountain exodus 19 3 then moses climbed the mountain to appear before god yahuwah called to him from the mountain and said give these instructions to the family of jacob announce it to the descendants of Israel. Take note, it wasn't all of Israel. All six point something million, all of them did not go to the mountaintop. It was only who? It was just Moses. Moses went to the mountain. He climbed the mountain to be before God. And Yahuwah spoke to him and said to him to give these instructions to the family of Jacob and announce it to the descendants of Israel. This was going to be a powerful message. Remember, uh, first impressions are lasting impressions. First messages are lasting messages. So God, Yahuwah Almighty, wants a, to deliver a special message to his people because now they're at the foot of the mountain. What is that special message? Exodus 19, 4 down to 6. You have seen 
what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. That's a nice message, right? It's actually a message of love. If you belong to the people of Israel, and you get this message from God himself, how are you going to feel? You're going to feel good, right? You're going to feel, I'm so fortunate. And from this standpoint, for other people who don't belong to the people of Israel, they might be a little envious or jealous, right? Why the people of Israel? Which is a good question. Why? Out of all the nations throughout the world, why did God choose the people of Israel to be the object of his special affection? Why Israel? Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, for you are a holy people who belong to Yahuwah, your God, of all the people on earth. Yahuwah, your God, has chosen you to be his own special treasure. Yahuwah did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that Yahuwah loves you. And he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestor. That is why Yahuwah rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So what was Yahuwah's basis for choosing the people of Israel out of all the people throughout the world? It was because he loved Israel, because he made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was keeping his promise because when Yahuwah, our God, makes a promise, guess what? We can count on him 100% of the time to deliver on his Promise. And so we have here in the in 19, 4 down to 6 of Exodus, a basis for God's relationship with Israel, right? And so what do we find in Exodus 19, 46 that tell us about the relationship of Yahuwah with Israel? It says, I carried you on eagle's wings. That's a picture of care and nurture. Because if you see an eagle, I don't know if you've ever seen an eagle before. Have you seen an eagle before? Right? You know how they take care of their young at a certain stage of development when the mother eagle goes to the nest and looks at her young? Well, he, she wants that the young will be able to develop the ability to fly because God created her for that purpose, to fly. So what does the mother eagle do? Well, the mother eagle breaks the comfortable nest and forces the eagles to fly. The young birds may not, may not be anxious to leave the security of the nest. And so the mother eagle, what she will do is to unsettle uh, the nest to kind of force that young eagle to learn how to fly. Once the young eagle learns how to fly, of course, the young eagle is not yet strong enough. And so the adult birds stay near the fledglings and if they fall, carry them on their strong wings until the young birds learn how to use their wings, ride the air currents and enjoy the abilities God gave them. It was pretty much the same way with the people of Israel. When they, were, when they left Egypt, God carried them up to this very point which is what God does for the people of Israel. So Yahuwah God will carry us. What else? Exodus 19, 46 again, brought you to myself. 
This tells us what God wants is a personal fellowship or relationship. Yahuwah wants our fellowship. What else? The Bible says, my covenant. You know what a covenant is? In the olden times, it was a legal document that binds you to an agreement with someone. And so Yahuwah is telling us he's binding himself, committing himself to take care of his people, the people of Israel. So Yahuwah binds himself to us. What else? Yahuwah says, my own special treasure. He says he owns the whole earth. When it comes to the people of Israel, they were different. They were the apple of his eye, his own special treasure. So Yahuwah valued the people of Israel. What else? It says here, kingdom of priests. Because from the people of Israel, all the earth will benefit from the grace of God. And so God gave the people of Israel a purpose. They were to become the vessels by which the power, the blessing of God, will be poured upon the whole earth. And so Yahuwah gives us a purpose. What else? Bible says, my holy nation. Something we need to understand about God is his nature. It is his nature to be holy. Because in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, be ju but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so God wants us to be holy. Why? He says, because I am holy. You know, there's something we need to understand also, if we are children of God, even in the Christian era. What is that? Ephesians 5, 1, since you were God's dear children, you must try to be like him. God says, I am holy, therefore be holy. And so it behooves all of us as the people of God in these last days to try and be like him, to be holy in all things. And so when we look at Yahuwah's relationship with Israel, he will carry them. He wants their fellowship. He binds himself with them. He values them. He gives them a purpose and he wants them to be holy like him. You might say, well, they're so fortunate. The people of Israel are so fortunate. But when God has given all of these promises, was he only referring to Israel? Who does that apply to, especially today? In 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10, I want you to look at the phraseology or the terms used by the Apostle Peter. Because the Apostle Peter is one speaking here. What era are we in now? Christian era. And this is what he says, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. He's speaking now to those who belong to Yahushua, Hamashiach, to those who belong to Christ. He says, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. And so basically what God promised back then in Mount Sinai, he's also promising today for the people of Yahusha, for those who belong to Yahusha, Hamashiach, or the Christ. This is why when we look at God's promise in his relation with Israel, all of that is also for us. This is why every time we kind of feel bad or feel overwhelmed by things, let's keep that in mind. We can count on Yahuwah to be this for us. He can carry us when we feel weak. 
He will be the one who wants our fellowship. Can you imagine that? Yahuwah will bind himself to us because of his covenant. Yahuwah values us and gives us a purpose. And our purpose is to proclaim the goodness and the praise of our God. Yahuwah wants us to be holy like him. So all of that applies to those who belong to Yahusha HaMashiach. This is the wonderful message that God said to Moses to tell the people of Israel. And Apostle Peter says that message applies also to all of us. And so when Moses went back to the mountain, what happened? 9, 7 to 8. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything Yahuwah had commanded them. And all the people responded together, we will do everything Yahuwah has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to Yahuwah. That's a nice message, right? After all that they've been through, God gives a nice message filled with grace. And the people of God respond by saying, we will do everything Yahuwah has commanded. And so what does Yahuwah do for Moses? This is a nice gesture. Exodus 19.9, and Yahuwah said to Moses, I will come to you in the thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. Moses told Yahuwah what the people had said. Yahuwah wanted to establish Moses as an authority figure because Yahuwah is well aware of all the complaints of the people of Israel from the very beginning, from the time Moses had to convince Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go, up until the crossing, up until the wilderness ventures, up to this very moment, what does Yahuwah see again and again? People complaining to Moses. And Moses probably is getting tired of it. And so God wanted to do something nice for Moses. What is that? He established his authority. He wanted to show the people of Israel, look, I speak only to Moses. Face to face. And so he wanted to show the people of Israel, you can trust Moses. He is my messenger. He is the one whom I have appointed to take care of the people of Israel. Now, before we go ahead and begin, because we mentioned to you, Exodus 19, it starts off the theme of God's holiness, right? And so there are four aspects of God's holiness that we will see as we continue forth with this chapter. What is the first one? Exodus 19, uh, 10 to 11. Then Yahuwah uh, told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothing. Be sure they are ready on the third day. For on that day, Yahuwah will come down on Mount Sinai as all the people watch. And so what is one important aspect of the holiness of God? He's so holy, we human beings, before we can even have the chance to be in his presence, we have to prepare ourselves. How so? We have to consecrate ourselves. This is why Moses said, or Yahuwah says, to wash their clothing. They cannot just barge into the presence of God unprepared. We need to always prepare ourselves before we face our creator. And when Moses was explaining this to the people of Israel, what did he say? In 14 and 15, so Moses went down to the people. He consecrated them for worship and they washed their clothes. He told them, get ready for the third day. And until then, abstain from sexual 
intercourse. It doesn't mean that sexual intercourse between husband and wife is a bad thing. It's just that when you are preparing yourself to, to meet with, to be with the presence of Yahuwah Almighty, one needs to be focused, one needs to consecrate and prepare himself. During the Christian era, how is this fulfilled? 2 Corinthians 7.1, all these promises are made to us, my dear friends. So then let us purify ourselves from everything that makes body or soul unclean and let us be completely holy by living in awe of God. And so we also, during the Christian era, before we have a worship service, we need to also purify and prepare ourselves from everything that makes the body or soul unclean. Let us purify all of that. So the first aspect of God's holiness is consecration. You know what that means? Consecration preparation, purification, before we face the holiness of God. What is the second aspect of God's holiness we need to understand? 1912, mark off a boundary all around the mount. Warn the people, be careful. Do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. And so, yes, God is going to reveal himself. Is going to show himself to his people because he loves his people, right? But he did give a warning. He wants to make sure that the people understand God is God and man is man. And so there are boundaries. And if anyone crosses the boundary, what happens to them? They are to be put to death. As a matter of fact, there was even specific rules concerning his boundary. What were they? 13, no hand may touch the person or an animal that crosses the boundary. Instead, stone them or shoot them with arrows. They must be put to death. However, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then the people may go up on the mountain. But there are some boundaries. There are limits to how far up the mountain the people of God can go to. If you cross the boundary, which God prohibits, well, what do you do? Either you stone them or shoot them from afar, right? This is what was instructed by God. So one as another aspect of God's holiness is a respect for boundaries, okay? God is so holy. Man is so different from God. There's this big gulf between God and man. We have to respect the boundaries that God has set up for himself. What else is another aspect of God's holiness? Verse 16. Uh, this is what it says. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared, lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. What is another aspect of the holiness of Yahuwah? It inspires reverence. It inspires holy fear. All the people trembled because God manifested himself as a roaring thunder and a flash of lightning, right? And even Moses, what was instructed to Moses and to the people when they were to meet God? Verse 17, Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God. However, because of the boundaries, they stood at the foot of the mountain. They were not to go up to the mountain. And so this is how they would probably, how far they were from the actual mountain. There's a, 
picture of Mount Sinai. We'll talk about where Mount Sinai is located today, right? Uh, but before we go there, this is probably where, I mean, this is the terrain around that area. You see the foot of uh, Mount Sinai, about one kilometer or 11 kilometers from the peak. That is where they are. You have to keep their distance away from who? Yahuwah, our God, right? Because of the holiness of God. And when Yahuwah finally appeared and he showed himself, how was it manifested to the people of Israel? 1918, all of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Yahuwah had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like the smoke from a brack kiln and the whole mountain shook violently. If you were there, you were among the people of Israel and you were standing there by the mountain and God's presence was manifested. You had the thunder, the lightning, then the fire and engulfed the entire mountain with smoke. How would you feel? You'd probably be afraid, right? You know who also was afraid? Exodus, uh, Hebrews 12, 18 to 21. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. This is Apostle Paul giving a commentary of what happened to the people of Israel there in Mount Sinai. Of course, this commentary came from the Holy Spirit as Apostle Paul was putting together the Bible. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They were so afraid. The people were afraid, right? Every time God spoke, something happened to them. They got chills or something. They staggered back under God's command. Even if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. That's what you call reverent fear. The people of Israel, when God showed up there at the mountain, they were trembling in fear. They had reverence for our all mighty God, which takes us to number three. Another aspect of God's holiness is it inspires holy fear or reverence. So we have consecration, boundaries, and reverence. What else? Well, what does God tell Moses to do after that? Uh, 19 to 20, as the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. Yahuwah came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. So Moses was trembling in fear. And then Yahuwah says, come up. <laughs> I wonder how Moses felt. Of course, Yahuwah, I mean, of course, Moses, he climbed the mountain, right? And when he was there, what did Yahuwah say to him? 21. Then Yahuwah told Moses, go back down and warn the people not to break through the boundaries to see Yahuwah or they will die. I think the people at this point, you will not have that problem, even though it is the tendency of people to do what you tell them not to do and not do what you tell them to do. At this point, I think we can probably say no one's going to even dare go up to that mountain after that demonstration of power by Yahuwah our God. Nevertheless, Yahuwah tells Moses, go back to the people of Israel just in case there are people who are hard-headed, stubborn, who want to explore, and because of curiosity, they want to see how God actually looks like, they might venture up and go up to the mountain. Yahuwah tells them, warn the people not to break through the boundaries, who also should not break through the boundaries. 22, even the priests who regularly come near to Yahuwah must purify themselves so that Yahuwah does not break out and 
destroy them. And so Yahuwah is telling Moses about the boundary. And Moses was, con was kind of confused because Yahuwah tells Moses to come all the way up to the mountain to tell them, to tell the people not to break through the boundaries. And so why was Moses confused? 23, but Yahuwah, Moses protested, the people cannot come up to, the, to Mount Sinai because you already warned us. They're already afraid, right? You told me mark off a boundary all around the mountain to set it apart as holy. And so what does Yahuwah tell Moses? Why was Yahuwah telling Moses to tell him again not to, to remind the people of Israel not to break through the boundary? 24 to 25. But Yahuwah said, go down and bring Aaron back up with you. And so those who can go up to the mountain to be with God, it's only by invitation. If you are not called up, you cannot go up. Those who can break through the boundary must be invited or be called by God. Moses was called by God, who also was called by God. Aaron, out of all the people, out of all the priests, Aaron was the one whom God said, come up, come up to the mountain. And so in the meantime, do not let the priests or the people break through the approach, uh, break through to approach Yahuwah, or he will break out and destroy them. So Moses went down to the people and told them what Yahuwah had said. This is why God, Yahuwah told Moses, I'm going to bring Aaron up. But if they see Aaron going up with Moses, the other people might see that as an indication. Well, if Aaron is going to go up, then I can go up too, right? And so Yahuwah reminds them, do not break through the boundary. Only those whom God calls can go through the boundary. At this point, it was Aaron. Now, I want you to think about Aaron for a while. Why do you suppose God singled out Aaron? Because he would have a function for Aaron to perform, right? What was that function? Hebrews 5 verse 4, and no one can become high priest. Remember the people of Israel is going to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They accept people's sacrifices and they represent the people of God. And so they would be the mediators of how worship is to be conducted. But if there were priests, there was the one high priest. Who was that? Aaron. Aaron was the appointed high priest. But if you wanted to be a high priest, you had to be called. And so no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work just as Aaron was. And so God was showing the people of Israel, I have called Aaron. He will be the high priest. It was to demonstrate to the people, no one can simply appoint himself to a duty or an office. They must be appointed by our almighty God. And so Aaron was called to become a high priest. What is the function of a high priest? What's the purpose of a priest? If you go back to Hebrews 9, 1 to 3, the first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. And so back then, under the first covenant, 
How was worship conducted? Through regulations that centered around what is called the tabernacle. This is the tabernacle. You have the courtyard. In the courtyard, you have livestock because they are to be burnt. And then you see that uh, small tent there. What is that? That is the holy place and the most holy place. It has two rooms. What are those two rooms? The holy place is the first part or the first room. And the most holy place is the second room. Who can go to the holy place? Only priests. They were to perform their duties there as priests. And who can go to the most holy place? Nine, six to seven, when these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed the religious duties. But only the high priests have entered, ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. And so the high priest, who was Aaron, what was his function? He was to go to the most holy place, right? But only how, how many times? Once a year. I don't know. So for the people of Israel, the only way to experience God is through the high priest. And only once a year. What does that show you about the holiness of God? He's so far off in holiness. He's so great. There's this great gulf between God and man. But the high priest, the one and only high priest, can only meet with him once a year at the most holy place. Do you think at this point God is very approachable? No, right? Because of his holiness. God is God, man is man. Because of the great gulf between God and man, there is this unapproachable aspect to his holiness. This is why the four aspects of God's holiness. Number one, consecration. Number two, boundaries. Number three, reverence. And number four, unapproachable. And when God spoke there on Mount Sinai, what did he also require from his people and from all of us? All of us. Let's read the book of Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. I can almost guarantee you the people of Israel there in Mount Sinai when God was speaking, they were all ears, right? Nobody was sleeping in that worship service, right? Why? Because God was the one speaking. And so Apostle Paul, looking back at what happened in Sinai, he said, you know, back then, you could not refuse the one who was speaking. For the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. Now he makes another promise. What is that? He says, once again, I will shake not only the earth, but also, but the heavens also. This means that all creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. Since we have perceived a kingdom, that is unshakable. Let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe for our God is a devouring fire. What is God's expectation today? If before when God spoke in the mountain on Mount Sinai, he required all of our attention and reverence 
all the more he requires our reverence today. Because what will he do today? He says, I, he makes a promise. He will shake the earth and the heavens. He will show signs on earth, signs in the heavens. What will that show? That the earth is being shaken up. I don't know. Look at the events today. What do you think? You think God is shaking the earth up? I think so, right? Why? He wants our attention. Why? Because he has a message. What is that? What must we do? Especially when we see that the world is about to come to an end. The Bible says we should be thankful and we should seek to please him. How so? By worshiping him with holy fear and awe. Did you get that? You know, now that we are so close to the end of the world, now is not the time to reduce our intensity of worship. Because there are people today who may be afraid to worship God. No, brethren, reverence for God means we worship God all the more with holy fear and awe. We worship him. We don't stop worshiping. We continue to all the more intensify our worship. So that's the end of Exodus chapter 19. But after going through that, we have two questions. Is it okay if we discuss these two questions about Mount Sinai? First question I ask is, where is Mount Sinai? Right? Where could it possibly be? Well, if you ask so-called Bible scholars, they will tell you that Sinai is right there by Egypt. That's the original, the traditional Mount Sinai site. It is bordered by the Red Sea on to, uh, towards uh, the south, and to the west, the Gulf of Suez, and to the right, the Gulf of Aqaba. Okay? You know why uh, pe most people, uh, tradition tells us that uh, Mount Sinai is located there? Because of the crossing. Remember when Israel crossed the Red Sea? I mean, it can be anywhere, right? And we talked about this before when we had the topic about the Red Sea. But tradition points the Red Sea crossing to be where? Right there. By the Nile Delta, the Suez Canal. And they were even suggesting it was a sea of reeds. And so it was really like a river or a lake that they crossed, not really the Red Sea. And if the traditional crossing of the Red Sea took place there, then of course the traditional place of the location of Mount Sinai would be right there, right? Right by the Red Sea in between the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. But in our study in the Red Sea, using the Bible, using archaeology, we were able to determine that the crossing took place not at the Gulf of Suez, but where? The Gulf of Aquaba. So if the Gulf of Aquaba is where the crossing took place, what would that mean? It would mean that Mount Sinai would be where? Somewhere, not there, but somewhere over there, right? Across Mount Sinai or across Gulf of Aquaba in a place called Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Jabal al Laws. And we're going to look for a mountain there that bears the characteristics, not only the mountain itself, but also the surrounding region, because it has to match. And one of the things you're going to look for when you look for the Mount 
the real Mount Sinai are biblical clues. And it's too bad because when you look for, for Mount Sinai at the traditional location, there is no evidence. Maybe they're looking in the wrong place all along. And then I think they were looking in the wrong place. They should have been looking at a place in Arabia, Saudi Arabia. That's what they should have been looking for. But before we get there, let's go ahead and look for clues because what we want is to find the biblical Mount Sinai. So let's look for clues, is that okay? What is one clue? Exodus 19, well, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. Yahuwah descended on it in the form of fire. So what would you expect from this mountain? The mountaintop would probably have a blackened top, right? Because it would be, it was consumed with fire. And so that would be the first clue, black or burned mountain top. What is another clue? Exodus 15, 27, and then they came to Elim, remember Elim, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the water. So along the path that leads to Mount Sinai, you should be able to trace a place where there's 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, that's what the Bible says. So that's another clue. It's, within a, it's near a place with 12 wells of water and 70 Palm trees, that's another clue, okay? What's another clue? Exodus 24, verse four, we'll jump to Exodus 24 because we're collecting clues and Moses carefully wrote down all Yahuwah's instructions early the next morning. Moses got up and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He also set up 12 pillars, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it might've looked something like this. It's an altar would have, and also 12 pillars at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so that's another clue, evidence of an altar and 12 pillars that was built around the foot of Mount Sinai. What else? Exodus 32, and Aaron took the gold. Remember this one? By the way, where did all that gold come from? Trivia. Where did all the gold come from? They had a lot of gold. Egypt. Egypt. Remember what Yahuwah said? Not only will the people of Israel let you go, they're going to give you all their jewelry. Sure enough, they took all that gold, but what did they do with that gold? Ah, then Aaron took the gold, melted it down. Of all people, who was their leader? Aaron! My goodness. I can't go on. <laughs> then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf when the people saw it they explained oh israel these are the gods who brought you out of the land of egypt and so they melted all that gold Can you imagine that? and they formed a calf a golden calf and they danced and made merry and they worshiped that calf and they said the gods was the one the calf gods were the ones who brought us out of the land of Egypt, I don't know about you. How would you feel if you were Yahuwah watching from heaven and your people's doing all this? Yahuwah has a lot of patience, doesn't he? <laughs> he is very, he's a very patient God. And so we should look for, this is a, an artist's rendition of how the golden calf might look like, right? It was placed on a pedestal and they were dancing around that calf because they were engaged in calf or bull worship. And so we, there should be evidence of calf worship around that area of the mountain, right? 
It's only logical that we can expect that. Again, we're looking for clues. What else? 32, 19, 20, when they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and he burned with anger. He was coming down from the mountain. He was gone for a while. When he comes back, he got really upset. He's burning with anger. He threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. What does he do next? He took the calf they had made and burned it. After burning it, what did he do? Then he grounded it. He grinded it. You know how you ground coffee? He grounded it into powder, threw it into the water, and forced the people to drink it. That's how upset he was. He broke the tablets, right? He was so upset. I don't think he, he meant to do that, but he was that upset. And not only that, he melted it, and he grounded uh, the golden calf and threw it into the water. So apparently the place where the golden calf was grounded, there was a river there, or a water, a system of water, a body of water there, right? And so we would look for, that's another clue, evidence of grinding of a golden calf and a body of water near that place where it was grounded. What else? Exodus 32, 27, 28, Moses told them, this is what Yahuwah, the God of Israel says, each of you take your swords, and go back and forth from one end of the camp to the other, kill everyone. Kill everyone. Even your brothers, friends, and neighbors, the Levites obeyed Moses' command, and about 3,000 people died that day. God was angry. He was furious. And so God commands the people to kill the Israelites. How many? 3,000 who carried out the execution. The Levites, who would then become priests, who would serve and help, who would help Aaron. And so 3,000 people died that day. And because all 3,000 people died that day, the people of Israel, they, they did not burn their dead. What did they do with their dead? They buried the dead, right? And so what can you also expect to find? Well, a mass burial site, a grave site, right? What else? That's another clue, by that's a big clue. What else? Uh, First Kings 19, 8 to 9. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night, but Yahuwah said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is about Elijah when he was being threatened by Jezebel, remember? Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you. And so Elijah, because he was really tired, I guess, he told Yahuwah, the God, he said, why don't you just take my life? And so he rested, he slept, and then he, an angel appeared to him, told him to eat. So he ate. After he ate, he got enough strength, and he traveled 40 days, 40 nights. Where did he go to? Mount Sinai. In Mount Sinai, what did he find? A cave. And in that cave, he spent the night, and there God spoke to him. By the way, in that cave, God also showed his power, right? But anyways, so another clue gives us, uh, this gives us another clue, and what is that? that? Well, that mountain should have a cave. Not all mountains have caves, right? But this one should have a cave that can accommodate a person. See how we have clues, seven clues so far. What else? Exodus 17, verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. 
And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Remember this? What happened here? Remember when they were in the or in Rephidim? Were they in Rephidim? When they were looking for water, and what did God say? He said to Moses, get your staff. There's this rock at Horeb. I want you to strike it. And from that rock will gush forth the water. And it happened, right? And it was actually a type of, it was a prophecy pointing to the fulfillment of Yahusha's ministry, right? But they were still a physical rock. It's called a typological prophecy. Remember when we talked about that? If you're not aware of that, let's go back to the topic on Rephidim. And so this, the rock gushed water from it. And how was that? How did that look like? In the book of Psalms 78, 15, 16, he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. This is a major clue. So by this mountain, which we call Mount Sinai, there would be a rock. And this rock would not be at the base. It would be elevated. Why? Because water will come from it and flow down. You see that? Waters would go down. How much water? Like the ocean depths. That's how much water. This water is going to create so much turbulence because it's going to become like an ocean, like a lake, like a river, right? And so we have clues like that. And so this gives us clue number eight. It will be elevated. This split rock is going to be a split rock. It will be high in elevation. And around that split rock, there should be evidence that there used to be plenty of water. Okay? That's a major clue. Clue number eight. And here's a, the last one. The, they're in Rephidim, right? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Okay, so if it's true, then number nine, we should find evidence for Rephidim and evidence of Amalekites in the area where Mount Sinai is standing, right? So these are the nine clues. Now we can use these clues and look for Mount Sinai. Are you excited? Yes. I'm excited too. Let's go with, with the number one. Turns out there is a mountain. There is a mountain that has a burned or black mountain top, but it's not located at the traditional site. But there in Arabia or Midian, Jabal al Laws. And the, uh, if you were to speak to the, uh, the people there, they will tell you it's called Jabal al Musa. Remember Musa? What does that, what does that mean? Moses. Moses, the mountain of Moses. That's what they call that. And so, how does that look like? There it is. The mountain is different from the other mountains. Distinct. Why? Because it had a blackened top. And there was a witness during World War II, uh, one who flew a plane around the mountaintop. He did not fly directly over it during World War II because he was warned, do not go over it because you're going to die. And so this... 
this uh, pilot was afraid, so he did not fly over, he flew around it. And he was interviewed by an archaeologist, a biblical archaeologist by the name of Bob Cornell. And this is what happened in that interview. When I took off, I was half scared to death. You bet I flew around it. But it was different than the rest of the mounds because it was black on top? Oh, it was a blackish green. It was dark enough to be uh, somewhat frightening. You want to know what I really believe? I think it's not fine. I think God let me fly around it. That's what I think. Yeah. So he saw it. It was black. And there, you can sense an element of fear when he flew around it. So that's number one, right? Find evidence. And so it's somewhere there um, where we discussed um, in Saudi Arabia. Okay. So that's one. Number two, near a place with 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. Along the route that leads to that place where there's a blackened uh, top of a mountain, what is there a place where they find 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees? Yeah. That's the picture of the actual place. Palm trees. I don't know if it's exactly 70. Maybe on our next field trip, we can go there and count how many palm trees. But they find there wells. You know how many? 12 wells. 12 wells and 70 palm trees. And when you speak to the people who live there, you know what they call that place? Elim. Could that be a coincidence? I don't think so. So that gives us another clue, which tells us that mountain with a blackened top, it must be Mount Sinai, right? But let's look for more clues. What was the third clue? Evidence of altar and 12 pillars. I wonder if we will find that. Remember. Right here at the foot of the mountain, we see this structure that resembles an ancient altar. And what we are standing in right now is probably the animal shoots that would lead them to sacrifice at the foot of the mountain. The animal shoots lead to this area of the structure, which may have been the slaughter platform for animal sacrifices. The Saudis, of course, say that this has nothing to do with Moses, but they admit that they found animal waste and bones underneath this area when they dug. People who have been to this site decades ago say that this site used to be much cleaner and you could more clearly see the remains of about 12 pillars, as well as a stone platform that they would stand on. Wow, so we have evidence of all, an altar, right? And 12 pillars right at the foot of that mountain that has a black mountaintop. Is that coincidence? I don't know, but let's keep looking for clues. What's the next clue? Evidence of calf worship. Hmm, did, did we find that there? If you go there, you're going to find these huge, huge rocks. If you look closely, what do you see? Well, let's magnify that. What do you see? Drawings of calf. You see two calves there? Yeah. yeah. Another one. People worshiping calves. Wow. 
this fenced-in archaeological site that the Saudis are protecting, you see both a stand with many petroglyphs of cows and people worshiping cows, as well as a structure as slightly lifted that may be the altar in front of the golden calf stand. That was a pretty, uh, it's a sacred site for the people who live there. This is why with the, if you go there, what are they going to do? The local tradition that this is where the golden calf was is so strong that if you approach it, you'll be suspected of searching for gold. According to the Bible, the worshipers of the golden calf say, these are your gods, O Israel. This verse indicates that there are multiple depictions of bulls as the Israelites are worshiping the golden calf. On the top. So we have evidence of calf worship. How about evidence of the grinding of the golden calf? That's kind of interesting. But is there evidence like that? Yep. On the top of the stand where the golden calf would have been placed, there is a circular indent where the rock has been worn down. It's speculated that this is where Moses grounded the golden calf into powder. After. Mm. Did you notice? In that video, it, there was a there was a a track where you, water used to be found, right there by that circular space where the golden calf was grounded. Okay, so we have evidence there, evidence of grinding of golden calf. How about the mass burial site? After Moses destroys the golden calf, 3,000 of the golden calf worshippers are killed. So there must be a spot where thousands of people were buried. About four miles from this site, there's a massive ancient graveyard. It appears to be a mass burial site where the graves were dug all at once. It's located just outside the plain where the Israelites would have camped. So it's exactly where it should be if this is where that story took place. Wow, amazing, isn't it? It's another corroborative evidence uh, discovery of a grave site. How about number seven has a cave? that can accommodate a person. Could there be a cave in that mountain? <laughs> Let's find out. This cave above the altar is about 15 feet high, 20 feet long, and 20 feet deep. If this is the real Mount Sinai, then this is almost certainly the cave of Elijah. There you go. They found also the cave of Elijah. But this was exciting, number eight. The elevated split rock with evidence of much water. The historian Josephus said that the split rock could still be seen in his time and it was so big that it could not have been moved. Is it possible that this split rock still remains today, testifying to the accuracy of this story? The answer is yes, and it is stunning. Josephus, just Josephus was a church historian, uh, and he witnessed with his with his own eyes the split rock, and he said it was too big to move, and that would fit the description. Well, how about evidence for water? Split rock is on top of a 100-foot hill and is somewhere between 40 and 60 feet high. And what's really amazing about this specific location in the valley, along the possible route to Mount Sinai is that the rocks underneath the split rock are smooth. 
as if tons and tons of water poured forth, forming a miniature lake at the bottom for the Israelites to drink from. If you have a relationship with a local, they'll tell you that this area is related to Moses. But wow. So we have eight clues. We go one more, number nine, Rephidim, and evidence of the Malachite. Remember, Rephidim was where the split rock occurred, right? And after they had water, who attacked them? The Amalekites. But God, uh, because of uh, his promise, he defeated them because he is uh, Yahuwah Nietzsche. Remember? God is our banner. Yahuwah is our banner. The Bible says the area near the split rock where the Israelites fought the Amalekites is named Rephidim, which means place of rest. Hebrew inscriptions we found there have been interpreted to say place of rest, the definition of Rephidim. Closer to the mountain, inscriptions have been found that Dr. Miles Jones, a scholar of ancient Hebrew, believes are talking about the battle with the Amalekites. He says one of the inscriptions refers to the death of an Amalekite. Nearby, there are two inscriptions that Dr. Jones believes are marking where a Hebrew mother and daughter died. The Bible says that God told the Israelites that they possess the land wherever the soles of their feet touch. Near the split rock and near the mountain, there are many inscriptions with an image of a foot and a sandal. Next to the image, there is Proto-Hebrew writing that means the sole of the foot. We also found inscriptions that were translated. What does that say? Yeah. yeah. The name of God. Yeah is the name of God. This is uh, evidence from the stones, right? It's dated long, long ago. And so we have here nine clues that point to the mountain, Mount Sinai in Arabia, okay? Um, let's go through a summary of that. Think about how many things line up with the biblical story right here at this mountain. There's a beach and path where the Red Sea crossing could have happened, matching the biblical account. You can see how the Israelites could have camped near Elam with its 12 wells and 70 palms. Along the way to Jabal Makla, there's a split rock and area suitable for camping. There's a mountain referred to as the Mountain of Moses, with a large plain in front of it where millions of Israelites could have camped. You can see an altar of uncut stone at the foot of the mountain, where there's evidence of burnt sacrifices right where it should be. There's evidence of bull worship, and you can see exactly how Moses would have seen the golden calf worship going on as he came down from the mountain. There's a brook that comes down from the mountain just like the Exodus story says. You can see right where the cave of Elijah might have been. All of these little details have to fit, and they fit. Like, doesn't that give you goosebumps? I don't know. Based on the evidence, um, if this was to go to court and you were a member of the jury and you were presented with this evidence, what would be your judgment? Was that the Mount Sinai? I think so. I think that would be the Mount Sinai. You know, and at this point, I just want to give credit to where credit is due. Video credits, right? The, uh, you, get, you, can, you can watch the whole YouTube at the Ryan Morrow Show. There's a YouTube link. Um, also, shout out to SinaiInArabia.com and the Doubting Thomas Research Foundation. If you want to donate, <laughs> you can go to DoubtingThomasResearch.com. But you know what? 
even if we have we don't have we didn't have all of those clues even if we did not have all this archaeological research we should still believe that mount sinai is in arabia you know why galatians 425 now this hagar remember hagar is mount sinai in arabia and corresponds to the present jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children apostle paul knew all along right this is why the bible is harmonious all the different parts in the bible fit together because it is inspired by our father so we know because of conclusive evidence biblical and archaeological evidence mount sinai is in arabia so we answered question number one where is mount sinai but we have to answer question number two because remember we had two questions right what is question number two i think question number two is more important than question number one because even if we don't know where mount sinai is it's really not that important it's nice to know right i mean it bolsters your faith somewhat but i think we need to answer this question because this one is more important, I believe. What is that question? How can we approach a holy God today, right? Because when we look at the Mount Sinai event, we can see God who's so distant. We cannot approach him. You can only approach him by invitation. So how can we do that? Because when we look at the four aspects of God's holiness, consecration, boundaries, reverence, unapproachable, it is as though God is telling us, do not approach, right? Do not come near me. I do not want to have a relationship with you. You're just man, and I'm God. And so what did Yahuwah, our God, do? Yes, we stand in awe, in reverence of the holiness of God, but there's something we must also understand. We stand in awe of, what is that? 1 John 4, 9 to 10 and 18, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We stand in awe of God's holiness, but we should also stand in awe of God's love. Why? Because of his love, what did he do? He sacrificed his son. And when Yahushua HaMashiach sacrificed himself on the cross, what happened? Matthew 27, 50, 51, Yahushua again gave a loud cry and breathed his last. He died on the cross, right? What happened? Then the curtain hanging in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rock split apart. What happened when Yahushua HaMashiach died? He breathed his last. What happened? The curtain that hangs on the temple was torn into two. From top to bottom. Why do you think it was from top to bottom? Not from bottom to top. To tell us it was Yahuwah, our God, who tore it apart from top to bottom. This was his work, not man's work. From top to bottom. He removed that curtain when Yahushua died on the cross. Why? What does that mean? Hebrews 10. When we have then, my friends, complete freedom to go into the most holy place by means of the death of Yahushua. He opened for us a new way, a living way, through the curtain that is through his own 
body. When Yahusha HaMashiach died, his death brought with it our freedom. What kind of freedom? Freedom to enter the most holy place without fear. Before only Aaron can go to that place, how many times? Once a year. Now we who were purchased by the blood of Yahusha, can we enter that most holy place? Yeah. Complete freedom. Why? Because Yahweh wants us to worship him. This is why we should not be afraid of worship. Because there are people today who may be afraid of worship. It's not the right time to worship, they say. We should not be engaged in worship. We should only have a prayer. Prayer is good. But we should never be afraid to worship the living God. Why? Because he has given us the freedom through Yahusha HaMashiach. But there is no executive minister. It's not about him. It's about Yahusha HaMashiach and his death that brought us this opportunity to approach our Father and to worship him in spirit and in truth. This is why Yahuwah says to us, now that the, the world is being shaken, it should move us to all the more dedicate ourselves in worshiping the living God. That curtain was torn. And so what does this do for us? Ephesians 2.13, but now you have been united with Christ Yahusha. Once you were far away from God, there were boundaries before, right? But now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Before there were boundaries, there was a tent. There was a curtain that separates us from the Father. But when Yahushua died on the cross, that was removed. The boundaries were removed and we can now enter the presence of our Father. And so what does God invite us to do? James 4, 8, come near to God. And what does it say? He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you hypocrites. And so that's something we have to understand. By the death of Yahusha, we were given the privilege and honor to worship the Father. We have to always keep in mind, brethren, we have to keep the holiness of God holy. We need to concentrate ourselves, consecrate ourselves, wash our hands, purify our hearts. Let us respect the holiness of our Father. He wants us to approach him. He has removed the borders, the boundaries, because he wants to have fellowship with us. He tells us to come. We should go to our Father. We should go to Yahuwah, our God. And what does he assure us? Romans 8.32, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Brethren, when God gave up his son, he was basically telling us, I'm going to remove all the barriers, all the boundaries, so that God can fellowship with us. Now that he has done that, why don't we take advantage of that? Why don't we make the most of that? Why don't we show our thankfulness by all the more worshiping the Father? Because the Father says to the Apostle Paul, if he did not spare his own son, don't you think he will freely give us everything else we need? And so whatever we're facing now, the threat of disease, unemployment, hardship, and poverty, whatever it may be, Yahuwah's message to us all, I give up my son for you. Don't you think Yahuwah is more than willing to do whatever is needed for us to be able to enter 
his everlasting home in heaven. Let's do that. Let us approach our Father through Yahusha HaMashiach and his shed blood to worship God and to receive his blessing. Okay? Now, before we go ahead and complete it, we just have a mailbox. Just two questions we're going to ask really briefly. Okay? First question is this. Uh, is that okay? We do, if we do question and answer, just two questions really fast. Uh, let's go with this one. Um, the, I, the Philippine Arena. Uh, INC's Philippine Arena is quarantine facility, according to the news. And somebody posted this and asked me about it because in the post it says the Philippine Arena is a large tent. Isaiah 54, 2 to 3, clear lots of ground for your tents. Make your tents large, spread out, think big, use plenty of rope, drive the tent pegs deep. You're going to need lots of elbow room for your growing family. Okay, and so I guess what the, the question that was asked was, is Isaiah 54, 2 to 3 the fulfillment or was it fulfilled in the Philippine arena? Is the Philippine arena the one referred to there as the large tents? Now, before I go ahead and discuss that, I just want to make things clear. We're happy and we applaud INC for doing this. They didn't have to do it, but they did. And so for me, that's a demonstration that they're concerned. They have a care for their fellow men. And so kudos, we applaud INC. I used to be a member of Iglesia Ni Cristo. I was born and raised in Iglesia Ni Cristo. And I know many people who are from the Iglesia Ni Cristo. Many ministers and many officials. They have a good heart. They're faithful. And so I applaud them. And I believe so many who are still in INC today that they have a pure heart. Not everything that you read on Facebook, you know, when they bash each other. Not all members of the INC are like that. Only a small a small minority, but most of the members of the Iglesia Christ are good-natured people, humble, and they're faithful. Okay, so kudos to Iglesia Cristo. We salute you for that, and we love Iglesia Cristo. However, um, of course, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to agree on everything because I disagree that the Philippine Arena is the fulfillment of Isaiah 54. 2 down to 3. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at the passage. 54, 2 down to 3. It says, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dis dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. And so it does mention a pretty large tent, right? However, this tent mentioned in Isaiah 54 was that fulfilled in the Philippine arena? I don't think so. First of all, the Philippine arena is not really a tent, right? Um, you can probably say it's a tent because it's, you know, it has cover, it's a covered dome. But what does the word tent here refer to when it says enlarge the place of your tent? What was it being referred to? Let's go take a look at the Hebrew word for tent and see if it refers to the arena. This is what it looks like in Hebrew. And you can see the highlighted word, tent. It comes from the Hebrew word, ohel. What does ohel mean? It simply means tabernacle. This is why when you read Isaiah 54, 2 to 3, it mentions not only the tent, but also the curtain, right? 
because in the during the time of the Israelites, when the people worshiped God, it was based on what? The tent. It was based on what? It was based on the tabernacle. And so Isaiah 54, 2 to 3 is telling the people of Israel, guess what? Your tent is going to get bigger. And so this is a promise that God makes to the people of Israel. What is that promise? Promise of restoration. What's the proof? This is a promise of restoration. When God was speaking in Isaiah 54, what was the condition of Israel? Let's go to verse 11. O storm-battered city, troubled and desolate, I will rebuild you with precious jewels and make your foundations from lapis lazuli. And so what was the condition of Israel in Isaiah 54? They were in captivity. Their city, Jerusalem, was a battered city. It was conquered, and so they were in desolation. This is why God gave the promise. Right now, you're in captivity. You are small, but time will come when you will grow large again. And what is the promise of God? What is moving God to give this restoration? Isaiah 54, 7 to 8, for one brief moment, I left you with deep love. I will take you back. I turned away angry for only a moment, but I will show you my love forever. So says Yahuwah who saves you. And so Yahuwah says for a brief moment, I left you. God left the people of Israel, his special treasure, right? To be captives in Babylon for 70 years. That's why it says a brief moment. For us, it's a long time. For God, it's a brief moment. But he says, I will take you back. What is that? Restoration. This is why when you look at the context of Isaiah 54, it is about the promise of God that he will restore his people, the people of Judah, the people of Israel. And because they were in captivity, to what were they likened to? Let's go to uh, Isaiah 54 verse 1. It says, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy. You who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says Yahuwah. Because they were in captivity, um, their humility, their humiliation was highlighted, and it was compared to a barren woman. Because during the days of Israel, if you were a woman and you had a husband and you could not produce a child, that was a, a moment of shame in your life. It was a point of humiliation. And so Israel was like that in captivity. They were like a barren, compared to a barren woman, a desolate woman. But God has a promise. He says, time will come when you, a desolate woman, because you're in captivity, when you will have more children than those who have a husband. To what also uh, does God liken the people of Israel when they were in captivity? Four down to five, do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You'll forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. Yahuwah Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And to what also does God liken the people of Israel when they were in captivity? People of Israel were likened to a widow who lost a husband, right? But Yahuwah makes a promise. He says, I will be your husband. Yahuwah Almighty is your 
husband. And so this is God's promise of restoration. The tense, it does not refer to the Philippine arena. It refers to the tabernacle system of Israel that was ruined because of the captivity. But God's promise is that it will be restored. But brother, could it be a typological prophecy? It could be. And I'm leaning towards that. But if it were a typological prophecy, does it mean it refers to the Philippine arena? No. Why not? Isaiah 54, 2 to 3. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not fall back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right, to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. It was fulfilled in the first century when the church emerged, bringing the Gentiles who belong to different nations to be a part of God's promise of restoration. And so if we look at it from a typological point of view, the word tent does not refer to the Philippine arena. It refers to God's promise of restoration for a people who were held captive in Babylon. Okay? Okay, so that's the first question. Next question is, somebody sent this in. I see a plague. By the way, this was uh, written back in 1986 by a Christian pastor by the name of David Wilkerson. And he says, I see a plague coming on the world and the bars, churches, and government will shut down. The plague will hit New York City and shake it like it has never been shaken. The plague is going to force prayerless believers into radical prayer and into their Bibles. And repentance will be the cry from the man of God in the pulpit. And out of it will come a third great awakening that will sweep America and the world. This was written back in 1986. And eerily enough, it sounds so, so accurate, doesn't it? Is there a plague? Yeah. Is it causing us to leave the bars and even churches? Yeah. Why? Because the government shut it down. Did it happen? Yeah. Who was hit the most in America? By far, New York City, almost 50% of casualties in America is from New York City, right? And so are people nowadays go, go engaging in more and more prayer? Yeah. Are they reading their Bibles more and more? Yeah. Right? And so we can see that pattern, though, happen again and again, not just during this time, but even in history. Right? Remember this? You know what this is? This is what happened after 9-11. You see, when you're threatened, when you realize the futility of your ability, when a man reaches the end of himself and he can no longer go further, what does he do? He reaches out to someone greater than himself. Right? This is why when 9-11 happened, people went to God. This is why you saw spikes in church attendance after 9-11. The same way we see spikes in spirituality and prayer. During this time, it's happening. But just like in 9-11, what would eventually happen? It's going to die down, right? It's human nature. When you're in trouble, when you're afraid, what do you do? You go to God, which is a good thing. God has seen that scenario again and again and again. And you know what God wants? And this is what God wants from all of us, especially during this time. Let's read one more passage before we pray. In the book of Deuteronomy, this is what Yahuwah says. Go back, Moses. 
Um, this is uh, the one speaking here, the people of Israel, because they know Moses is, you know, he's always going to God, right back and forth to God. And the people of Israel says, Moses, go back. Go back, Moses, and listen to everything that Yahuwah, our God, says. Then return and tell us what he said to you. We will listen and obey. You see the people of Israel? At this point, they were in trouble. If you're in trouble, you want to know God's message, right? And so they tell Moses, go, go to Yahuwah. Tell us what he has to say. We will listen. Are people like that now? Yeah, people like that now. What does God want us to say? What does God want us to know? What does God say right now? I'm all ears. I'm all attention, Father. And so Moses goes to Yahuwah. In verse 28, when Yahuwah heard this, he said to me, he said to Moses, I have heard what these people said, and they are right. And then Yahuwah adds the following sentence. And this is the message of Yahuwah for all of us. What does he say? If only you see and feel the concern of Yahuwah there. If only they would always feel this way. If only they would always honor me and obey all my commands so that everything would go well with them and their descendants forever. Moses did not have to tell Yahuwah about what the Israelites suggested. God can hear everything. God knows everything. And when he looked at his people, as he looks at us now, God says to all of us, if only you always feel this way. Not just now, but always. And Yahuwah tells us, if we always feel this way, you know what he said? This is what I want, that you always honor me, you always obey all my commands, regardless of the condition in life. Because when that happens, Yahuwah says, everything will go well with you and your descendants forever. See, Yahuwah wants to bless us. He's so patient with us. And what he wants from all of us, brethren, let us be worship, let us be true worshipers. Let us yearn for the presence of God, not just now, but always. Always seek him with reverence, moved by his love for us, that we too will love him with all of our ability. Let us stand, brethren, and we shall pray together. Almighty, gracious Yahuwah, our God, Amen. from heaven, we know and believe yes, that you are looking upon your people yes, in every place across the globe yes you look at our hearts and our minds yes you test our hearts often yes and we are so sad because we confess to you that often we fail your expectation Amen. there were times when we forgot you yes times when we ignored you father you were shaking the world now yes and so we look up to you yes with fear and reverence yes but especially we are moved because of the love that you showed. Though we are undeserving, Father, yes, you gave up your son yes, so that these boundaries can be removed because you want to have fellowship with us. Yes, Father, thank you. Who are we? We human beings. Who yes. are we? That you, the creator of all things, yes. would desire us. Father, 
we promise you, we will search for you not only now, yes. we will always honor you, we will always obey your commands, yes. and we will worship you no matter what, even if we do not prosper, yes. even if we go through tribulation. Yes. Father, we will continue to worship. Yes. We will not be afraid to worship. Yes. We will worship you the best way that we can. Yes. To show that we honor you, we revere you above all things. Amen. Lord Yahusha, thank you for your sacrifice. So many people nowadays yes. are going through difficult times. Yes. Pray for us. Yes. When you died on the cross, the curtain was torn apart. Yes. You gave us access to a new life, yes, life to be with our Father, yes. complete freedom to approach His presence. Yes. But we realize we need to also renew our life. Yes. Help us to do that. Yahusha HaMashiach, lead us along the way. Yes, Forgive, please, our sins and make us worthy before you. Amen. Oh, Father, thank you so much. Yes. Remember Lord. your people throughout the world yes. who are carrying so much burden. Yes. Those who are afflicted with sickness. Yes. Heal them, Father. Yes. Heal those who are sick. And may you provide relief for people throughout the world. Yes. That, oh God, we will be led to you to glorify you today, yes. to glorify you always. Amen. We believe, Father, you have listened to our prayers. Yes. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha. Amen. Amen.